As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0. Okay, so this is uh, Ginger Toys for OneOuter.com, and it's a great privilege today to speak to the legend that's Phil Helmuth. Uh, all-time bracelet winner, uh, leader in WSOP caches, and uh, probably the biggest name in poker. Uh, how are you today, Phil? I'm having a great day. Can't complain. Good, good. Um, so life's good, yeah? Yeah, life's good. I mean, I really, I can't uh, can't complain, you know? Yeah. Um, so if we just uh, maybe start at the beginning, I was having a look through your Hendon Mob uh entry for you know all the tournaments you've won throughout the years and I looked way back your first entry ever was in 1987 October so almost 23 uh, years to the week and your first tourney cash was for a fifth place finish in the pot of gold casino Reno for $1980 so uh, was when you were playing in 87 was it cash games or was it tournaments mainly then wow 1987 really <laughs> yeah yeah uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I must have been I must have been about 22 at that point or maybe I'd, I I don't even know wow I was born in 64 in July so mm. well anyway yeah I don't remember that but I do remember I do remember being in Reno in the early in you know in, in the late 80s and I remember um, I was primarily a cash game player then and I remember you know inventing a strategy way back then of playing I was playing a 1020 Texas Hold'em or I think it was 2040 Hold'em mm-hmm. and I just I was only going to risk $200 and then I was and then that was it for the day right and so, you know obviously that's five big bets right yeah mm-hmm. so I would buy in for my $200 and um, you know and because I wanted to play all day because I didn't want to dog it because I didn't want to end up broke I would play super 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 tight which was a really good way to play limit hold'em mm-hmm. especially when people were playing a lot of hands so some days I would lose 200 and I was done but there were a lot of days where I'd win 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 so that's all I kind of remember from 87 <laughs> was you know, using like a very restrictive money management yeah. uh, and get myself to play tighter because uh, I looked in the next year, the same casino, so it was obviously a, a lucky place for you. At the Pot of Gold Reno again, a year later, 8 to 8, you had a first place finish for 17500 That was my first tournament. I still have that trophy upstairs. That was on Easter Sunday mm-hmm. in 1988. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a religious day, and I'm a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of priests play poker. So mm-hmm. I didn't have a problem with that. I thought it was kind of cool. But yeah, my first tournament win was 1988 Easter Sunday for 17.5. I think we made a deal. Um, I think we couldn't come up with a deal when we were three-handed. And I was lucky my ace-queen held up against somebody's ace-eight. I still remember. Came <laughs> 9-10-jack. We were all on before the flop. Came 9-10-jack. Suddenly I was rooting for an eight, and he a queen. Mm-hmm. And I believe Ace Queen High held up, and then I was heads up. And I may not, I may not even made a deal at that point, but but I think I made a small deal and left with fifteen thousand. A huge win for me. Yeah. Back yeah. 
1988, baby. So then, um, and just in terms of your thoughts on bankroll management and stuff, you know, a lot of the pros, I've read your uh, book that you were involved in with Ivy, Deal Me In, uh, which is an excellent book. Uh, a concept that I thought has been really needing to get out there in a long time in the poker world, uh, because in fields like trading, etc., you have conversations with market wizards. And, you know, it's really the ins and outs of the minds of these people. And I think people are more interested in reading that than a strategy book. And there's so much more you can learn in terms of overall beliefs and stuff, you know. And money management was a common theme. So your first 17K score or 15,000, from then did you practice, you know, stringent bankroll management or did you maybe take more shots, etc.? You know, what's interesting about that is I do remember this. In 1988... Um, in April, before that tournament, I had been playing in Las Vegas at a tournament at Caesars Palace, mm -hmm. and uh, the Amarillo Slim event, and I probably couldn't even afford the main event at that point. But what I did do is I started going to the Stardust and playing 10-20 limit hold'em. Mm -hmm. And I started winning an absurd amount of money. I started averaging nearly $5,000 a week wow. playing 10-20 hold'em. Mm -hmm. and a lot of weeks I'd win 3000 4000 and they had a contest where they gave away $2,000. First place was $1,000. Uh, I believe second place was 600 and third place was 400 for the most money won per week. Mm -hmm. And I won in a nice streak there where in about three or four weeks, three weeks I won 21000 I had a couple of big wins in a 30-60 game too to support that, but $21,000 in about three weeks at the Stardust. And uh, I remember I was working out every day. I was going to the swimming pool in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I was practicing some strange practices where the 10-20 games were always full, so I didn't have to worry about a seat. I would sit down with $100. If I lost the 100 uh, no matter how I lost it, I felt like I was already a little bit on tilt. So I'd quit, and I'd come mm -hmm. back a couple of hours later. If I won, I'd just continue to play. Mm -hmm. And uh, a very strange kind of practice um, that I stuck to for the whole three weeks. And uh, I found that if I was unlucky for the first 100 and lost it, then I was a little tilty. If I played bad, then I was already a little bit tilty. And I just quit for three hours. And so it was amazing how, you know, I was just playing, you know, when I was feeling good, when I was running good. And to win 21000 in three weeks was huge for me and was huge for my bankroll. And then I went to Reno and won my first tournament. And then... Um, kind of my poker playing career in earnest really launched then. I remember um, playing in the World Series in 1980. I somehow won a satellite for the main event. And uh, I somehow became one of the chip leaders. And I really didn't know what I was doing to the extent that I do today. But I, I had a lot of skills. And I remember uh, this guy named Johnny Chan came to my table. I didn't even know who he was. Well, he was a defending champion from 87. But that's how little I knew about the poker world. And I went on to um, finish 33rd. 36 got paid. Believe it or not, I got paid 7500 for 33rd, I think. <laughs> so less than the buy-in. <laughs> yeah, I lost money. Yeah. But I was inspired, and I remember a friend of mine came up to me, Big Al Emerson, who I love, and I've been in contact recently, and he said, he was like shaking me. He's like, you just blew like a huge opportunity. You might not ever have a chance again your entire life. Mm -hmm. I looked it squarely in the eyes and I said, I'll have a chance to win this tournament every year the rest of my life. Yeah. And then in 89, I won it. Mm. And of course, 
face Chan this time at the final table, and then of course heads up. I think what's a, a, another amazing thing, saying that you know you looked the guy straight in the eyes and you had that conviction that you won it. Something also amazing about your story that I've I've read is the thing about I think it was your mother spoke with the psychic uh, Rose Gladden, and she sort of seen all this in the stars and. Us card players, you know, I think we're all superstitious and we all look at the universe and sometimes it's our best friend, sometimes it's out to get us, or it feels, <laughs> or it feels that way, you know, when you get two outward or one outward on the river. But I, th- I think there's something strange about that, you know, I mean, what do you think about that to this day, that that woman that had never met you said, this guy's destined for greatness, and you know? Well, that was very strange. So my mom was involved in, you know, in, in kind of some new age stuff, and so... There was a like a world famous convention for psychics. Yuri Geller would be there, Rose Gladden. So my mom was doing was at this convention, and she brought Rose Gladden back to our house for dinner. And so Rose is you know famous for seeing angels and whatever. And she sits down, and we're talking to her, and we're pesting her to read the future. And she's obviously a little bit annoyed by this, mm-hmm. you know. And somehow we convince her to read our futures, you know, and whatever. And she grabs my hand, you know, and. And uh, she just starts to turn like an off shade of blue or something. I mean, it was very, very weird. Mm-hmm. And she said, you will be known around the world. You will be infamous. And those words stuck with me. You know, known around the world and infamous. She didn't say famous. So, you know, <laughs> she just said famous. But infamous, come on. Yeah. Not infamous. I mean, I, you know, a little bit. I uh-huh. am, right? Yeah. <laughs> she wouldn't tell me what for, but then... She read the hands of my brothers and sisters afterwards, and when she didn't predict earth-shattering great things for them, mm-hmm. you know, she said some, some, you know, small successes or whatever. And, you know, I mean, when she didn't say we were all going to be rich and famous, then I thought, wow, okay, then maybe this is for real. She would have said we're all going to be rich, we're all going to be famous, we're all going to be this, we're all going to be that. Then I would have discounted it immediately. It's like, yeah, whatever. But I was 17 at the time, and I needed something to hold on to, and I'm like, all right. You know, I'm going to be world famous at something. Yeah. And it fed into something that I kind of believed in mm-hmm. and, you know, and kind of gave me some extra fuel that I would be, you know, great at something. And it certainly wasn't sports. By then I knew that. I was 17. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and so I kind of went along my path, a little bruised, a little tattered, not particularly good grades, you know, um, not, um, you know, not a great athlete, um, not particularly socially, you know, I didn't really have a ton of friends either. So, you know, I felt kind of, I didn't really feel good about myself. But I had that to hang on to. Um, I also, I think probably when I was 17, I was going out with one of the most beautiful girls in the school. So that made me feel, but that was my only source of self-esteem is Rose yeah. Gladden's prediction. I think a lot of people would take those two things. <laughs> the hottest girl in school and told you're going to be, you know, infamous around the world. I think, you know, I'll, plenty of people yeah, would be but, happy with that. <laughs> yeah, but did you, have, but did it, did, but, you know, did you necessarily know, you know, you know, I didn't, yeah. you know, you, you could grab onto it and believe it, but yeah. to grab onto it and believe it and have it happen, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot there that people don't understand. Yeah great things and having them happen you know and that's one of the things you know, oh, it's, I it's, believe. certainly it's positive thinking etc I mean 
father had something on my bathroom mirror when I grew up. You are what you think. You become what you think. What you think becomes reality. Three mm -hmm. self-minds. You are what you think. You become what you think. What you think becomes reality. So I bought into that. I read that every morning when I brushed my teeth. And I'm like, all right, I am what I think. I'll become what I think. Well, I might as well think I'm going to be great. And what you think becomes reality. Well, if what I think becomes reality, I might as well be world famous and great at something. Sure. Well, you're certainly a good advert for for uh, people practicing that, you know, and, and a good state of mind. Um, recently, you know, uh, the World Series, uh, I was watching some of the coverage from that and the quest for bracelet number 12, you know, carries on. Uh, but I can see recently uh, you've had, you know, you went quite deep in the short space of time in two WPTs. Uh, the Bay 101 sixth place finish in the 25k at the Bellagio for seventh place. Um, and, you know, this is coming from someone that people are saying, oh, you're finding tournaments a little bit more, etc. I mean, obviously, runs like that just show people that, you know, you can certainly still more than hold your own currently in these tournaments. Well, you have to understand, you know, that the young kids out there, they don't get it. You know, they win something, they think they're great, you know, and then we don't hear about them ever again in some cases or sometimes three years later. They don't understand, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're newbies to the game. Mm -hmm. This is not golf. You, you know, you don't just win every week in poker. There's huge fields. There is luck. You know, and, and you have, it's a very spurty thing. So I won one in 06 and I won one in 07 and then nothing in 08, 09 or 2010. So... It's about time where I should have won something, but I'm not on the regular tour like everybody else. So I don't, maybe had I been on tour the whole time, I would have won something in late 08, or I would have won something in early 09. You never know when you're playing your best and when you're running well. I mean, mm -hmm. those are two big factors. Mm -hmm. And so it felt pretty good to, to crack it off at the Bay 101. And look, Let's be honest. I crossed a million-dollar chip mark. I crossed 500000 before anybody, and I had a million, and I was chip leader for about three days. Mm -hmm. And when I had $1.6 million, I was just really in a zone playing great poker, picking up tons of chips without hands. Mm -hmm. Tons of chips. At the end of the day, when I had gone from 400000 to $1.6 no one at the table could remember me winning more than 150000 in a single pot. It was just chop, 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 over the top, picking up lines, playing small pots with big pairs. Yeah. Just moving up, you know, risk-free poker. That's that's me at my best. And then when we got to the final table, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have played a little more conservatively. I was unlucky. I ran into some hands early. Still, I had, so I probably blew about 500000 in my chips, I would say, to get from 1.6 to 1.1. Then I was unlucky, too. And then to be able to put 850000 in, you know, still six-handed with two queens against the crazy kid. I mean, I'm sure he's a nice kid, but, I mean, he was just playing out of his mind crazy. Mm -hmm. thought he was just going to dominate the table and run everybody over. Ran his chips, worked for a while, he ran his chips way up, and then he ran them way down. And anyway, he decides to double me up, you know, and uh, I limped in with queens. He re-raised the size of the pot maybe 60 more, I called and raised 200,000 more, which was well over the size of the pot. And then he moved in, and I snap-called him. And uh, he had ace-jack, and I'm watching the cards come down, king, five, six, mm -hmm. and a new zen place, you know, then a ten. And, you know, I wasn't expecting an ace on the river, and nor was he. And when the ace came on the river, we were both in shock. Yeah. You know, he tried to double me up. It was the first time I'd been on in three days, and I didn't deserve it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, just enormously. I mean, he just tried to give me the chip lead, basically, and 
McLean had around 1.8, maybe 1.9. I would have had 1.7. The crazy kid would have been down to 1.4 or something, and so I would have been second in chips and in a commanding position now having finally won a pot and being settled down. And, you know, the ace on the river was just, you know, horrendous. And so I deserve much better than sixth place in that event. And, you know, and so I was extraordinarily frustrated. I, and I still remember being at the Bay 101 final table and taking another bad beat a few years back after sitting there waiting and playing patiently. And so that's some bad memories. But look, I had a good shot. And then the Tour Championship was even more devastating to me because I had 2.6 million with six players left. And, you know, Sean Buchanan's own with the ace-queen against, against uh, you know, against, uh, uh, you know, Baldwin's two kings and comes ace-queen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Billy Baxter's own with ace-king against Bucks, two-eights, and, you know, uh, and Buckman, you know, uh, and, and he hits like an ace on the river. And so there were two or three times where people were all in where I would have made the final six and everything changes. Yeah. So it was extraordinarily frustrating. I played really, really, really tight, you know, with two million left. And for me not to make it with 40, 80 blinds playing that tight is just disturbing. And frustrating. Yeah. So, I mean, when when you're someone as experienced as yourself and played the amount of tournaments you've played, you know, I'm sure you've seen it all. It, it worries me that I think that still hurts no matter how long you play the game. Everyone is going to still sting and, you know, surely at a point in that tournament. I mean, I know, I think it was the the, the WPT when it was well publicised, you actually went to the floor, etc. I think we've all felt like doing that, you know, some even small stakes I play. I, I was in Vegas for the first time in my life in February. I played a Venetian $300 buying game, uh, down to you know 40 players left. First prize was 30k. I had kings against queens. The guy hit a queen on the river, and I thought the world was out to kill me, you know. But I looked on it. I was in Vegas. It was a good experience. But do you think poker players will ever just learn to accept that you know sometimes no matter how you play, the 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 randomness, if you like, can just you know crush you. Yeah, the randomness can kick you in the ass. It can also, I think that poker players sometimes forget when the randomness has helped them. Mm. And so I try to keep track of all the times the deck has saved me. Mm-hmm. And, and say, hey, listen, I'll call my wife and say, hey, honey, I was saved today. Remind me of this. And I'm complaining about a bad beat. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at the World Poker Tour Champions to 25K, I had queens and the other guy had kings. And we got it all in on 4th Street. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might have been able to get away from the sand, but anyway, the river was a queen for, you know, and I wouldn't have had many ships left. So, you know, you have to remember those times where you're helped. Yeah. Um, you, you try your hardest to do that. But look, I'm the poster boy for not handling beats well. <laughs> Although in 2010, I've done a pretty good job of handling them. When I went down in the corner at the Bay 1 on the ace game, I sat there stunned. Yeah. And I couldn't. But I didn't go off about how bad he played ace-jack. Like, my usual speech about, you know, ace-jack, what were you thinking? How could you stick 850 against me? I mean, it was a truly mm-hmm. horrendous his part. But, look, I shook his hand and said, hey, you know, whatever. Well done. And yeah. I shook everybody else's hand. And then when I was exiting the stage, I collapsed. I was just like, it's not like I had to collapse. I was just, like, feeling just horrible. Yeah. I couldn't, I didn't feel like being a jerk and getting it out and, in that way. I just felt like you have to handle it better. It was just a very natural thing to fall on the floor. Now, the strange thing is, 
I walked to the back of the stage, near the corner, and when I fell, it was in a dark area. And after about 30 seconds on the floor, just shaking my head like, oh my God, what just happened to me? That was so brutal. How unlucky was I in the last five hours of play to even be out of this thing? And, you know, and how bad are these players and blah, 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 going through my usual progression of, oh my God, I'm so unlucky and how could this happen again? And then you have suddenly realized, you know, that, wow, the cameras are still on. You know they are. Of course and I'm they are. Down the <laughs> uh, yeah. And all of a sudden I said, oh my God, you know, you only have to look up stand up, man up, and go do an interview. So, you know, I stood up, and sure enough, boom, two cameras on me with lights on me, and all these people lined up at the railing, snapping pictures, snap, 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 snap. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, and I smiled at the absurdity of it, and, and I went and I shook everybody's, and I went to do my interview, and the brutal thing about that was I waited for about 10 minutes for my check. My wife's with me. A lot of my friends I'd invited because this is my hometown tournament. Yeah. And uh, I'm handling myself well. And one of them is like my 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 assistant's husband is a security guard, like the head security guard at like you know at the at a huge firm around here. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, he's like, "You want me to keep people away?" I'm like, "No, I'll sign the autographs. I'll do the pictures. I'm signing." And all of a sudden, they called me back to the stage, and I'm like, "Oh my god." This is the day 101 where I have to sign the guy's shirt for I Busted Phil Hunt. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes. cameras, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, this is a nightmare. I said that for five seconds. And I said, ah, shut up. Bro. You got man, it. I'm yeah. Man, I'm there. I signed it. Good luck. Everybody insisted on shaking my hand again. Uh-huh. And I got a standing ovation from the crowd. And then another standing ovation. I felt like the energy in the world just kind of flipped towards me at that moment. I felt like, boom, mm-hmm. perceived as this bad guy, and everything's just changing in this moment because I've handled myself well, and they appreciate it. I was way to say that to you because I thought everyone's going to come out, ridicule, you know, forums, laughing, etc. And after everything I've read about that, I've read people think nothing but good things because you know what? I think everybody has wanted to do that at one point collapse to the floor and cover their head you know everyone feels it and at the moment's taken you it was good television i mean it wasn't planned that way i mean i I was just i just went down you know i think it's normal natural thing to do and uh and it's just so it's just i think people have been waiting for me to grow up a little bit to not go off at the other players yeah i mean the guy got his money in with ace jack but that's what he's supposed to do yeah and i was supposed to have the queens because that's what i do Mm mm-hmm you know, and so he had an ace. So what? You know, I mean, it's the first time I was all in for three days, even yeah. close. So what? You know, man up and, you know, and, and just leave the room like a man, you know. And so that felt good, you know. Yeah. So when it comes to tournament poker now, you know, we speak about the young kids and stuff. I mean, I'm 27. I don't even consider myself a young player anymore in poker. And people speak about it's all math-based, etc. now. And your style is very much, like you say, you know, you chip up, you pick your spots, why risk your money in bad bets when you can sit and wait on moments and have a guy drawn to, you know, two outs, etc. But how much of your uh, focus now still sort of believes on you're reading the billy and tournament life over maths? You know, some guys will wait till they're 10 big blinds and they're, they're shoving. They're not looking for a spot or a situation. 
I think with tournament players, even at the low level I've played and experienced, there's a lot to be said about patience and holding out, you know, for that for these moments. I think the the new math is very interesting, but I don't see many of the internet kids using the new math. I mean, they use it online, but they don't really use it in the real world. I mean, what I've noticed is everybody's playing a lot tighter. Mm-hmm. They're all playing tighter again, and, you know, the guys that are going deep are the guys that are playing tight. Now, I'm not saying that they don't have a few moves here and there, but those crazy kids that used to raise every pot, they're all broke. Mm-hmm. You know, just like I thought they'd be. They're all broke. And so the guys that have survived are the guys that can make some moves occasionally, but can just sit there and play patiently until... You know, if you have me on your left, you don't want to go crazy. I mean, you, just, you, you might want to just wait for an hour or two until I slow down or until, or, or if I have you at your table or if you just have a bad table. You mm-hmm. might want to just. So people are playing a, a more, a better style, more towards the correct way to play Hold'em tournaments right now. And uh, that opens up some opportunities to raise a little bit more and to re-raise a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So um, just to sort of like uh, obviously a few you don't want to take up much more of your time, but just a few uh, sort of tips for people starting out in poker today with you know like you back in eighty seven eighty eight, but they're playing on the internet maybe on Ultimate Bet and they're starting with five hundred dollars. You know what's the sort of maybe like top three tips you could say give them? Well, I mean, I think I think if I were starting over, I would I would definitely uh, I would definitely. I would go get my course. I really would. I mean, uh, you've got the World Series of Poker Academy course, which is, you know, what is it, $19 a month, and you can learn so much so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I would get some books and some stuff like that. You have to arm yourself, and that's important, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to buy this important information. And then, you know, the number two thing is that I, I think that, you know, patience is still underestimated. And, uh, you know, and so... The number three thing is money management, money management, money management, and so many people don't get it. Yeah. You, like you said, you read my book, you know, uh, Deal Me In, and yeah. every top pro in that book talks about managing their money, and that's what it is. You can't run out of money. If you want to be a semi-pro player and you want to eventually be a pro, you have to learn to never risk all your money in one day. You understand that a guy who's building a business can have lots of bad days and still make a billion. He can be tired and hungover and, you know, and show up and half-assed half the days. But if he has a great concept and he's pushing the ball forward and he has some people behind him, he's still going to get to a billion. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you show up as a professional poker player feeling tired or hungover or off your game, you could lose all of your money in one day. Yeah. And, yeah, you'll probably blame it on bad luck. I mean, it seems like when you're playing bad, you're running bad. You're playing hands you're not supposed to. And you're getting there on the flop, and then you're putting your money in, and you know, and you're getting outdrawn, and you're like, "Oh my God, I'm so unlucky." Well, you know, part of that is not playing the proper strategy. So, I mean, money management, money management, money management to those people at home. Yeah. Um, so, also, uh, I couldn't let you go um, without asking you about. Uh, the late great, you know, Stu Unger. Um, for me, one of the best clips in poker. People speak about you saying, you know, I can dodge bullets, baby, and Tony G clips, etc. But for me, a true poker fan, the best clip I can find on YouTube is when Stu Unger won the 97 WSOP. You're in the commentary box with Gabe Kaplan, and he comes in and he's speaking with you and Gabe, you know, about hands. And it was just, 
a privilege to hear you and still you know sit and talk about poker like that like a couple of other guys you know sitting talking and uh, maybe if you could give me a you know your favorite Stu Unger story or something well I mean Stu was Stu was an amazing talent you know he was he was one of the best backgammon players in the world he was considered the best gen player in the world in fact he couldn't even find a game he was so good at gen mm. that he couldn't find anybody on the planet earth to play him it was crazy and so, you know, um, and, and just a great hold'em player. He was also great at, you know, handicapping horses. One of the best in the world at that. So he was just multi-talented. Uh, Stu's problem was that at age 14, he, 13, 12, he was in bars playing high-stakes gin games and crushing the competition. And I think that that led to his handlers didn't keep him away from, you know, drugs and the alcohol and, and the stuff like that. And Plus, you know, he's ten years was ten years older than me, so it was a little bit of a different time when he grew up. And so, I don't know. I mean, Stu and I played some great great hands in our history. I remember one hand where um, the Stewie and I were crazy. And uh, and so we were at a table. It was me, Stewie was on my right. Amid the small chi was at the table. Ali Farsai, Johnny Chan. I mean, like the best Hold'em players, No Limit Hold'em players in the world, all of us playing 100, 200 blind, wow. No Limit. And I was a little tilted, and Stu was a little tilted, and Amid raised it up with two kings, and Stu called, and I called, and I had Jack-5 suited. And it came Ace-Deuce-3 with the Deuce-3 of spades. And I checked, and Amid bet, and right away I didn't think he had anything. And Stewie raised it, and right away I'm like, all right, he doesn't have an ace. So I'm just going to ship it. So I moved in for 20,000. By the way, the Ace of Diamonds was on board. So I shipped it for 20 of the 20 dimes. Mm -hmm. And Ahmed folded. And Stu, to my great surprise, called me. And without flipping my cards up, I said, you want to split the pot? Stu sat there for a second. He said, no, deal a card. <laughs> and boom, boom, they turned the jack of clubs. He said, you want to split the pot? And I said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> jack, I knew... I mean, it's the nuts. Of course, of course. <laughs> I think Stu assumed on the flop that I had a deuce or a three. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now they burned her on the last card. It was like the seven of diamonds or whatever, a blank. And I'm um, collecting this like $40,000 pot, which was a lot of money back in you know 1995 or whatever it was, 96. Mm -hmm. and, Stu, uh, and Stu flashes the five, six of spades. He flopped a straight flush draw. And he assumed I had a deuce or a three, so he's like, why should I split the pot? Meanwhile, I was rooting for a four on the turn, mm -hmm. and that was the one card that would have killed me. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would have made a straight, he would have made a six-eye straight. Yeah. And then, you know, and he was so unlucky because if no jack or five comes, he's going to ask, do you want to split the pot? I'm going to say yes. Because I'm not going to gamble with jack high when he asks me to split the pot. I'm not going to be smart enough to put him on six-eye. Mm -hmm. So he needed exactly an offsuit jack, of which there were two, or an offsuit five, of which there were two. Because if a five comes and he asks me to split the pot, I'm going to say hell no. You know? So, yeah, he was a little unlucky. There was a 10 to 1 shot that a card would come where I wouldn't split the pot. And then, and then having not split the pot for the blank to come on the river, it was pretty brutal for him. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a very interesting, interesting hand, one that I always remember. You know, Stu and I were a little bit crazy when we played. We we liked to play deep stack, and we played a lot of hands, and we played fast. Um, yeah. But you know, uh, you know, we played 
a bunch of times against each other in the past. Yeah, just I, w- I, w- I do wish he was around just now to see how he would, because I'm sure he'd rip these a lot of these fields apart. You know, it would be interesting to watch. Great television. Well, um, the main thing about Stu is his reading ability. Mm-hmm. So he he just had a way of calling a huge re-raise with Jack Nine suited when it was the right call. You know, not when it was the wrong call, but when it was the right call. Mm-hmm. And he had this way of you know putting a lot of money in. Uh, you know, into pots when, you know, with the weekend. I mean, you know, uh, I still remember he beat me a big pot where I had king-queen suited and the flop was, you know, I think, 3-5-7, and he had ace-three offsuit, and I flopped a flush draw, and he called two huge bets. Um, and I didn't even try to barrel him on the river. It was <laughs> Stu. Yeah. I didn't try to barrel on the flop and turn. Yeah. And, uh, I'm sure he was calling me on the river, but... Well, o- over in uh, Scotland just now, speaking of great television, the the party Premier League, uh, the Premier League that was over in Vegas, is uh, currently starting to be screened on Channel Four in Scotland and the UK. Um, so that that looks good fun from the trailers, etc. There's you know uh, good little dialogues between you, J- uh, JC Tran, uh, Tony G, and also Luke Schwartz looks to be good value. Did you enjoy all that experience? I mean, it looked it looks you know great fun. Yeah, a lot of fun, you know, and it's good. Some of the young players like Luke didn't know who I was, really. I mean, he knows who I am. He he told everybody I'm pretty G. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought that was fun. That I, may I mean, catch on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you'll see that uh, it comes right down to the last match. And, you know, and, and, you know, and, and what's amazing is to watch who's fighting for a spot in the last match, including me, for the playoffs. And uh, that's going to be great fun for people to watch that last episode because it was completely crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, great show, and, and I've enjoyed it. I've been in Premier League every year, and I'll probably do it again, especially if they shoot it in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to tell you a little story now, if I can, just uh, and we'll end on this. I think it's quite funny, and it's something I've wanted to get out for a while as well. Um, I played the World Series of Europe last year, the 1K event, and I was sitting at a table, and there was a few typical sort of internet kids, uh, young, aggressive French guys, etc. And we were all sitting waiting. And um, there was a few of them actually speaking about, you know, Phil Hellmuth, etc. And it's not a secret. A lot of the young guys simply don't respect, you know, your game and whatever. You're, which is crazy when you are the all-time bracelet winner, and people say bracelets don't matter. But even Ivy, you know, loves a bracelet, and everyone's still going after bracelets. And these guys are sitting speaking and they're saying, you know, oh yeah, Phil Hellman, blah, blah, blah. And there was a spare seat next to me. And I was like, he's not here yet. I wonder if he's going to come and sit here on my left. You know, that would have been a good show. But you didn't. But you walked across and you sat at the table next to me. And I'll tell you, every one of these young guys that were like 19, 20 looked across at you like you were bloody God. And I'm not trying to be sycophantic here or inflate your ego or anything. But it just hit me. These guys are quick to say, Phil Helmuth, you know, he can't play this and that. But when you walked in the room, you were usually late entrance. And it was the 1K small event. The whole fucking room turned and watched and looked at you. And I just thought it was hilarious. And I told people in my local card rooms, you know, t- five minutes, ten minutes earlier, these young guys, Phil Helmuth, you know, donkey, blah, blah, blah. He walks in and they're like, uh, 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 like looking. And I just thought it was hilarious. Eh? And a lot of these internet guys won't admit to that. But I, I think you're still a hero to a lot of them, Phil. And I'm I'm not ashamed to say, you know, you're a hero of mine as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think I think it's easier to be a hater in life, you know. And, uh, Definitely. I fought really hard never to hate, never to be a hater, you know, and to try to respect, you know, try to respect those. And when I came up in the game, I respected Doyle Brunson and 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 T.J. Cloutier and Johnny Chan and all those guys that had come before me. And you know, that's one reason that you know, if you ask Doyle if he loves Phil Hellmuth, he'll answer yes. <laughs> you know, he might not agree with my entrances or whatever. You know, but I always respected these guys, you know, and, and said, you know, they kind of like blazed the path. And I think it's easier just, you know, to, to respect people and it's easier to be a lover than a hater, I think. And and I think you'll 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 go a lot further in life if you're a lover, not a hater. So anyway, That's... to everybody out there, good luck and uh, good night. That's great. That's uh, ginger toys for one with Phil Helmuth. It's been an absolute pleasure, Phil.